I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everyone, this is David Kern. Thanks so much for checking out this podcast. I won't keep you too long, but I did want to say a quick word from our friends over at Duke University's Arite Initiative. This summer, from July 9th through the 14th, they're going to be hosting the High School Summer Seminar on Ethics, Philosophy, and Religion on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina. This seminar is going to prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college. Using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the ideas of natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. The seminar will be co-taught by several Duke University instructors and professors. It's open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. There's no fee associated with applying or attending. Let me repeat that. There is no fee at all for applying or attending. And those admitted will be housed in the Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. So again, that's no fee of any kind associated with applying or attending, and it includes lodging and meal cards. Pretty good deal, I think. Students interested in applying should email John Rose at john.rose at duke.edu. That's J-O-H-N dot Rose, R-O-S-E at duke.edu. Applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26th, 2018. And again, that's john.rose at duke.edu. And with that, enjoy your show. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education. I am David Kern, and today on the show, I am excited to bring you an interview that I did with someone who I have been wanting to talk to for a long time. Uh, Mr. Jonathan Rogers has been on the Cersei Podcast Network before on Brian Phillips' show, The Commons. In this episode, though, uh, of Forma, he and I talked about his fiction, and in particular, his fiction series, The Wilder King Trilogy, which begins with The Bark of the Bog Owl, continues with The Secret of the Swamp King, and concludes with The Way of the Wilder King. If you listened to my recent interview with Sarah McKenzie, you heard her um, offer up some fantastic praise for Jonathan Rogers' series. And um, I just wanted to kind of um, follow up on her comments by saying that I agree with those. Uh, Jonathan Rogers' uh, books for young adults um, and, and for children, or what he calls middle grade books, are fantastic. I have been reading The Bark of the Bog Owl with my kids, just finished that one. And, and as I kind of explain in the interview with Jonathan coming up, they wanted to jump right into book two, The Secret of the Swamp King, and we did that. Um, they are really good. I highly recommend them. He calls them uh, fantasy stories or fantasy adventure stories told in an American accent. The description on his website mentions that they are peopled by boasters, brawlers, bumpkins, con men, cowboys, and swampers, and they draw deeply from the American vernacular storytelling traditions. They harness the humor of that tradition in the service of divine comedy, a worldview in which the sorrows and hurts of this world, as true as they might be, aren't nearly so true as a vital joy and love that will one day sweep everything before them like a flood. 
we talk in this interview a little bit about um, some of the influences uh, on his books, including Mark Twain. We talk about uh, his process and where these stories came from, the genesis of these books, so to speak, uh, and and much, much more, including some, some stories that Jonathan tells about uh, his native Georgia and the people that he knew there. Um, I, I love this interview. I love talking to Jonathan Rogers. He, he loves books. He loves writing. Um, and he loves his stories, and you can tell that. They, it comes across in the interview. If you want to learn more about uh, Jonathan Rogers, you can head over to jonathan-rogers.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S.com. Uh, also, his books are all available on Audible. So if you're looking for an audio version of these books or you know, you're on, you're got a trip coming up or you just need something to occupy your kids sometimes and you, know, you can't read to them or, or you know, maybe they're not readers yet, the Audible version is an excellent uh, option. You can use your credits there. So if you just go over to Audible and search uh, for, one of, for one of those book titles, then you'll find them easily and you can grab, snatch those up. They're all available on The Rabbit Room as well and we talk a little bit about that on the show. So without further ado, I will get it over to my interview with Jonathan Rogers here on Forma. Thanks for listening and uh, enjoy the interview. The main thing that I wanted to to talk to you about was the Wilder King yeah. trilogy of, of books. Uh, do you consider them? What, what do you consider them? Young adult books, children's books? How do you? I'm gonna call them middle grade. Okay. Okay. Books. Yeah. So I, I'm reading those right now with my kids, and we're well into the second one now. Mm-hmm. It was the kind of thing where we read the first one, they really liked it, and then next thing I knew. They wanted to read the next one. We were going to, I think we were going to take a break. We were no. going to read, I don't remember what it was, something else. And uh, they were like, nope, nope, we're going, next one, please. <laughs> that's great. They're obviously people of taste and decency. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's that's exactly what the lesson that I'm learning from this is that my kids have taste and decency. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess I was curious about um, the genesis of these books, the, the, the origin story, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily where you got, the inspiration, but where you kind of, how they, well, I guess the inspiration, but also what was your process in writing them? So, well, I guess let's start with where the idea came from. Was this something that you were, uh, you had been working on for a long time or did, and it kind of was fermenting and uh, aging, so to speak, and yeah. kind of turning into something or, or was it something that, that came to you all of a sudden? It, like, it, I can sort of identify the week it came to me. I had, um, uh, gone down to Florida to visit some friends. I had uh, quit my job or was sort of working out the last, the, my a two month notice. And um, with my last vacation days, I went down to Florida to see some friends and um, was listening to a series of sermons by Eugene Peterson about hmm. David yeah. and was sort of struck by the narrative possibilities in the David's like not like that's news that there's narrative possibilities in the David story, but I just yeah. marinating in those especially yeah. interested in this idea of what would it be like to, to know that you're going to be the king someday, but you're not the king yet. And you still have to be loyal to the current king and those issues along those lines. Um, and I really loved the stories about him in the wilderness with his, with his mighty men. Hmm. And um, so I was sort of marinating in, in those stories. And at the same time, going out every day and canoeing in the swamps. Oh, yeah. In Florida. And oh. I always loved... You know, that I grew up in the southern half of Georgia, well, really the middle of Georgia, but they were kind of uh, right where the flat sandy part starts. And yeah. so I was always fascinated by swamps and, and alligators and all that kind of stuff. Huh. And so between, um, between those sort of thinking about the David story and 
and living among the alligators and the snakes in Florida, um, this story sort of started to take shape. I thought it'd be really fun to think about um, some of those narrative possibilities in a more American setting, specifically a, a, something that looks like the American South. And, um, and so then I, I went to a bagel shop in Orlando, Florida and started writing, um, started outlining the, what became the Wilder King trilogy. So you, did you, was the, well, why didn't you just set it in America then? What, what was the, you know, why a fictional, uh, a fictional world when you, that looks like yeah. American South and not just the actual American South? Well, you know, I, I wanted to have some flexibility to, to do. I guess it, early on, I was thinking uh, more medievally, sort of a, a medieval type story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, there wasn't any medieval times in in the American South. Uh, or, right, right. I guess there was, but there weren't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess the American South was here uh, during the medieval <laughs> period too. But but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so I just just sort of gave me some some flexibility. Now, as you as you get deeper into the story, you may notice that um, the uh, the more kings and castle kind of stuff fades into the background a little bit. Mm. Um, and then by the time I get to the Charlton's Boy, the, the fourth book, which is um, set in the same world, it's more of a kind of a cowboy setting. Ah, okay. You know, the, those, um, it's still Cornwall, but those, um, you know, there's not much medieval stuff left in that story did you were you writing these for for your own kids or just the idea came to you so you thought i'm just gonna write these and see what happens or was yeah there, and I, I mean i was i was i was writing them i wrote a i wrote one chapter and showed it to a, an agent and said you think you could sell this if i finish this story and he said he thought he could and hmm. so i went ahead and wrote it which which in retrospect wasn't nearly enough um you know encouragement to justify sitting there writing a whole book, but it worked out. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I was writing for my kids insofar as I was reading, you know, I I would read a chapter as I finished a chapter, I'd read it to them. uh, But it wasn't one of those stories where, you know, you hear about people saying, well, I was just telling my kids a story and then, and then I decided to write it down. It wasn't that kind of thing. Really. Did you, what were you, did you, were they giving you feedback as, as they were going? Were they like, man, maybe Aiden should do this or, you know. A little bit. Mostly I, I would just kind of pay attention to when they look bored or when they laugh uh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, did you, you talk about David, the story of David in the Bible being an inspiration for you. And, um, you know, it, there's obviously some very clear parallels between the David story in the Bible the killing of the giant and so forth. Was there, was there, was there a point for you as you were working on it where you were thinking, okay, this part is going to be really consistent with the biblical story, um, such as the, the giant sort yeah. of scenario. Um, and that you've got like Daryl being Saul and yeah. Aiden being David and so forth. Were there points when you were saying, okay, this has to be very true to that story, have a real parallel structure. Um, and then other times you were saying, oh, I'm going to veer off here. So it's not like too parallel or yeah. did it just sort of happen and evolve? And was there purposefulness in that? Or was it the stories, the story that your, your appreciation for the biblical story just sort of flowing out of you into the, into yeah. the book that you were writing? Well, I was, I mean, I was just kind of feeling my way through it, trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Uh, I'd never written a book before, you know, and, and uh, never really even written a short story before I sat down to write the bark of the bog out. And so I was kind of, just figuring out how to do it. And, and originally, initially I thought that I'm just going to retell the David story um, pretty 
pretty close. Um, but it's going to be in a, in a swampy place. Okay. And, um, and then as I, as I, the story kind of found itself, as I went through, um, I think, you know, in, in the second and third book in the trilogy, there's, it's, it's hues less and less closely to the, to the Bible story. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I found actually a while back found the first pages I ever wrote in the, in the process. Huh. And I literally just had the names David and Goliath because <laughs> I hadn't <laughs> come up with character names yet. Yeah. That's how close I was. I was sticking to the story at first. Um, and, and then I, um, as I said, as that story kind of found its legs, um, it was really the, the later, the later parts of the, of the story are, uh, related to the, to the Bible story, um, in very broad, in a very broad sense. So okay. it's, it's really the, yeah. the, um, it's the three kinds of adventure story, right? There's, it's the, I shouldn't say V3 because I'm sure there are more than three, but, but three major adventure story, um, motifs. There's the giant killing in the, in the first book, uh, in the second book, that's the quest story. The, the, the hero gets sent out on a, an impossible quest. Yeah. Um, and then in the, the third story, it's the, the Robin Hood story, living as an outlaw, but, but doing the, trying to do the right thing, hmm. all of which are contained in the David story, of course. Um, yeah. and, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what that's, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't feel, it didn't feel as important. It quickly felt less important to me to, um, to do anything even remotely allegorical as I got into it. But on the other hand, the, that first scene that I wrote, which was the, the David, the, the giant killing scene, like this is a major spoiler alert, but anyway, um, uh, that was kind of anchored into the, into the story in such a way that there was no, um, uh, you know, there was, there was no going back on that particular scene. Oh yeah. But as I, as I said, it got a little less close. Well, for people who are worried about spoilers, you, you may know, your parents may know the, may know what's going on, but your kids could still be surprised by the, that's right. uh, Yeah. So, um, Okay, so for you, it wasn't so much about the the narrative arc because you felt like you were touching on sort of universal narrative arcs that are, that are so many different adventure stories are uh, kind of. Um, yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I've heard those sermons from uh, Eugene Peterson that I was telling you about a minute ago. They became a book called Leap Over a Wall, which is quite a good book. And if I remember correctly, he kind of points out that the the various you know, standard adventure stories are in the David story. I think that's yeah. probably where I got that from. Okay. So then was it for you, was it more about, as, as you said, kind of what's going on in the head of a character who's, you know, person yeah, who's I mean, what, what's it like to yeah. um, young David in the, in the Bible story has to figure out what, what's it like to, to find out that the people who told me that God is faithful, don't believe it themselves. What's it like for, you know, for, um, the person I'm supposed to be loyal to, the king I'm supposed to be loyal to, to be disloyal to me. Um, you know, he's going through some really difficult things that I think kids have to go through. Mm-hmm. Kids whose parents have taken them to Sunday school, and then sometimes they see their parents aren't um, aren't living like they believe what they've told them is true. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been fascinated with what David, what it's like, what would what it would have been like for David to be in that situation. Yeah. Did you um, find that you were trying to, did you find it difficult to get in the head of that character, 
of your character or did you feel like the character of Aiden, who's your protagonist, that's kind of your, I don't know, we'll call him a, a doppelganger for David. Did, <laughs> did he, uh, did you get into his head pretty easily or was there? Yeah, that didn't seem, that, that wasn't terribly hard. Yeah. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, there's the, the swamp people, the Fiji folks, um, yeah. they were relatively easy to get in their heads too. Um, cause I went to school with those people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what was your process like? Because did you, I mean, did you know that you were going to write three, four books? Was that this was going to be, you know, maybe a trilogy? At yeah, first I, I, knew, I knew early on it was going to be the, it was going to take three shortish books to tell the, the story. I, I never really wanted to write, you know, one 500 page book for, young readers, you know, I wanted to write three, you know, 250 page books or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I knew uh, very early on, I, I knew how the story was going to break into three. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did, I mean, is, so you wrote four. Yeah. And so you, when you, did you sketch out an outline for four books at the beginning or did you outline one and then say, okay, no, I'll figure the, it out after that? Yeah, the, the Wilder King is one story. That that's a that's a one story in three books, and then okay. the Charlton's Boy is a is a whole other story set in the same world, extended expanded universe type thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So do you have plans for another one? Uh, yeah, that's the that's the hope to write a um, uh, to write a sequel um, to the Charlton's Boy. That's I should say that's the that's the plan. Let's don't call it a hope. Let's call it a plan. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the last page of the Charlton's Boy says coming in 2011. <laughs> you know, the sequel, <laughs> and uh, that we had a bit of a miscommunication there. I, I didn't realize that uh, actually I never did agree to deliver a, a a book. That was 2010, and it said in 2011 the story continues. And and uh, as I said, that that was news to me. When I flipped to the back page, I thought, huh? <laughs> Guess I better get to work. Yeah, right. So when did you write the first one? Back in like 05, 04, something like that. Am I, am I the the Bogal came out in 04. So I wrote it in 02. Okay. Yeah. Wrote it in 02 and then finished it in, uh, at the end of 02. And then it came out in 04. So what was the process like trying to sell that? Just trying to find someone who kind of understood your vision for it. And yeah. was that pretty easy or was it a challenge? Well, as it, as it turns out, that was a, that was pretty miraculous. I, I uh, live in Nashville. There are plenty of literary agents around here. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so just a friend of a friend was a literary agent. What I didn't know at the time was that I was his first client. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but he took it and, uh, and did a great job of, of finding a, finding a publisher for it. So it was originally published in, uh, with Brobden and Holman and, um, and then 04, 05 and 06 were when those three books came out. And, um, and then they ended up giving me the rights back. Um, and it came out again through rabbit room press. Right. Yep. In 14, I think it was. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense now. Cause I remember, I felt like I'd seen other covers or were the covers different? They, they were, they were hard covers before. Okay. Okay. So uh, yeah, they, they gave me the rights to the uh, cover art too, which was very generous. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So Robert Room has them now. It seems like Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems like there has been something of a recent renaissance in terms of interest of, or maybe an increase in interest in these books. Oh, yeah. uh, it, considering they came out, you know, 12, 13 years ago, that's, that's yeah. a pretty good shelf life, so, you know, yeah, right. so to speak. <laughs> no, they've definitely come back to life. Why is that? What do you think that is? Um, well, a big part of it is that Sarah McKenzie got a hold of them. The, the okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, yeah. 
Um, Sarah she, wields great power. She does. Yes. I hope she uses it for good and not for ill. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, um, she f- was exposed to them through the rabbit room. You know, the rabbit room has started setting up um, a booth at a few homeschool conferences. And so she, um, she encountered all the rabbit room catalog. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And she's gotten excited about about what we're doing at the Rabbit Room, and uh, and so um, yeah, that's how they came back to life. The Rabbit Room, y'all have a lot of good good titles. I mean, it's, it, do you, I, this I guess a little bit of a, an aside from your specific titles, but yeah. I, it, is that a big part of what the Rabbit Room's after is creating these middle grade young adult novels that that can kind of continue in the tradition of the Lime the Witch and the Wardrobe type books? Is that uh, is that I wouldn't wouldn't call that a stated goal. Actually, I know it's not a stated goal of the rabbit room and rabbit room is just interested in, um, in the intersection of, of faith and art and friendship. And as it turns out, you know, Andrew Peterson, he wrote, uh, the wing feather books. Yeah. 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 Uh, I wrote the Wilder King books. And so there's, there's seven books for middle grade readers right there. Doug McKelvey, uh, wrote a great, uh, great book called the angel new Papa and the dog. For yeah, I, read that to, I read that to my kids last year. I love yeah, that. I love that book. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and then Jennifer Trafton, um, with hindering the chalk dragon and, uh, the rise and fall of Mount Majestic. Yeah. Um, yeah. well actually, uh, not all those are rabbit room press, but they are by rabbit room people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, um, I just read rise and fall actually as well. Isn't that a fun book? Yeah, my kids really like that one. Yeah, I bet they did. Yeah, we've been we've already established they're tasteful. They're, they're <laughs> taste. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, okay, since we're talking about um, books of uh, <laughs> books of that people who have taste like, uh, yeah. let's talk about your taste a little bit. What are some of the books that inspired you to be a writer? That inspire you to write now? To, to that inspired you as you were writing? Uh, the Bark of the Bog Owl and that whole series. Can you point to any specifics that said, oh man, that's the kind of book I want to write or man, I read this book and now I want to go read, I got to go do some writing now? Yeah, it's, well, um, it's it's funny. I didn't even, I wasn't even fully conscious of my um, of my influences at the time, except when somebody, you know, some reviewer pointed out, commented how much um, my books owed to Mark Twain. My first thought was, well, no, I wasn't even thinking about Mark Twain, but then, huh. it's, then I realized, of course I was, uh, I mean, I wasn't thinking about Mark Twain because Mark Twain is always there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I don't think about oxygen either. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, uh, you know, Mark huh. Twain, just that. And, and another thing that another big influence on me were the, were the books that influenced Mark Twain, the sort okay. of Southwestern humor that yeah. people don't read much anymore. And, Sometimes for good reason they don't read it anymore. It, it, it's pretty horrible stuff in in many cases. I don't know if you've how much of that southwestern humor you've you've been exposed to, but um, it's it's often violent and uh, and often racist. And there's all kinds of awful stuff going on in those stories. But the verbal energy that is specifically American in yeah. in the um, Goodness, I, I can't even. It's been so long since I've read or thought about those books that now I can't even think. The, they all have three names. Well, um, I love I love this concept of like Amer- an Amer- a uniquely American verbal energy. Yeah, because um, well, I mean, you see it in in Twain, obviously, and in some ways, you see it sorting sort of starting to blossom in that 
early late seven late 18th century early 19th century literature like well before twain you know yeah. even some of the stuff that's from new england and in yeah. certain ways you see it sort of coming into its own in like melville or james fenimore cooper yeah. it's not it's not as fun yet there yeah um but it seems like as we moved into the wilderness more and more and kind of took pride in our right yeah i I love i love that turn that american literature makes where where people a few people said you know we're going to stop looking to england for how to how to do this and we're going to figure this out america um and so that that literature went from american literature i'm speaking as if i'm not an expert on this but but it seems to me that that somewhere along the line a certain strain of american literature or american writers said um, let's see what sort of grows up from the ground instead of us looking into books to see how to write. Yeah. And uh, I mean, think about even, uh, yeah. there's nothing, you know, Homer wasn't a literary person, right? I mean, he, he, he wasn't, think about what, uh, what um, uh, C.S. Lewis says about primary and secondary ep- epic in Preface to Paradise Lost. Um, you know, Homer didn't, you don't, you don't imagine Homer had, manuscripts in front of him to think about how, how to do what he was doing. Right. Uh, right. And there are certain, you know, there are certain writers who, who were not just don't feel so um, bookish, even though they're writing books. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I love that strain of American literature. That's, that's not bookish. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of writing that, that has a good, you know, comes from having a good ear. Yeah. Yeah. It, it so, recognizes the, like a native language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you're asking what books insp- you know, I found helpful or inspiring or whatever. Uh, Lonesome Dove, Larry, Larry McMurtry. Yeah, um, I do love that book. Man, what a great book. And, um, and I had not read uh, Charles Portis at the time. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have now. And man, that, that guy <laughs> is just right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah. True grit, which we're doing on close reads right now. I think yeah. you're, you're, you know, you knew that we were doing that, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know about true grit. I mean, I know y'all are doing it and I've, I, uh, I, as soon as I heard y'all were doing it, I, I pulled it out and, and listened to that Donna Tart version. My goodness. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. That audio version. Fantastic. Yeah. I think you mentioned even in a separate conversation to me that, uh, that, that she has an essay at the end of that audio book. It's yeah. about sugar grit, which which is really good as well, right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And the other amazing thing about that essay at the end is that you realize that Donna Tart is just talking like Donna Tart in that book. It, <laughs> um, you know, she's not putting on some sort of special Maddie Ross voice. That's just the way she talks. Well, you know, th- one of the things I love about a book like True Grit, you get it in Flannery O'Connor, who I know you're you know a lot about Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Um, the, well, you find that even if you don't speak exactly like I don't know, Donna Tart or like Flannery O'Connor would have, if you didn't speak with that, that Georgian accent, you, you find that when you're reading it, you can't help but speak in that some little, at least in some little bit, because yeah. the language is structured in a way that is, that is true to the place that it's, that it's coming from. That's it's, right. it's that native language. So even if you speak, if you have the harshest of box Boston accents or you're from, you know, London somewhere, you're mm-hmm. still going to find probably that in your own way, you are shaping words and, you know, um, just because you're going with the way the sentences are created, you're speaking yeah. with sort of energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and 
you you beat me to Flannery O'Connor. She, of course, was exceedingly important to me. Yeah. Um, and in in large part because um, you know I spent so much of my uh, the early part of my intellectual life trying to leave middle Georgia, trying to learn, you know, I've got a, I've got a PhD in 17th century literature. And so I was always trying to learn how to, how to, I was this sort of raving Anglophile, you know, and I, I, I uh, was trying to learn how to speak John Milton's language. Huh. Um, and, and that's, but you know, John Milton doesn't make you want to write. He doesn't make <laughs> you want to sit and, and write a, an epic poem. I mean, there's yeah. maybe some people he does, but not me yeah. I, I mean, as much as I love Milton. Um, but I couldn't have been a, a, I could have been an academic all day long, you know, with, with that kind of mindset, but I couldn't be a book writer, an author, uh, yeah. without Flannery O'Connor sort of bring me back to middle Georgia. Um, it's, it's just, I'm, uh, it's a happy, a happy coincidence or a happy providence that she's actually from the same part of the world that I'm from. Um, and some of her, some of her speech ways, um, are not just American and not just Southern, but specifically Middle Georgia. There, you know, there are terms of phrase in her work, especially in her letters, that I would have never expected to see in writing, but I, that I'd heard all my life. You know, huh. and it sort of gave me a a, yeah. a courage, or a, I don't know what the word is, gave me a, a permission, I guess, to write in my own native tongue. Huh. And, um, so, so then, do you find that as you're writing, you know, these these what you call you know middle grade books that that um that you're trying to honor that native tongue, that you're trying to employ that native tongue in a book like this, even though it doesn't necessarily take place there? Or, or is it maybe just certain characters you want to honor that through certain characters or something like that? Um, I, I don't even know if honoring is the right word. It's just that that's, it's, it's my, um, it's just my, my voice. I mean, you know, I, I've had the, somewhere along the line, I realized that, the closer I can, I can make my um, voice be the same, whether I am talking to t- standing in front of a class and talking or giving a speech or writing a, an essay or writing a story to the extent that I can, that can all be the same voice. And obviously it can't be exactly the same voice all the time, but to the extent that it can, there's a little extra verbal energy that I can, what's the word? I mean, I, long and short of it is I have energy left to, to do more interesting things if I'm not having to, to uh, think about voice. And so it's not even a matter of honoring any particular voice. It's a matter of, of, uh, of settling into my own voice and, and letting it go. Did you find that, I mean, did it take you a long time to, to, to realize, I don't know how to put this to, to discover that voice, to, to, to feel comfortable in that voice? Um, in writing, probably so, because I, um, you know, I was a, I was an academic and growing up in middle Georgia isn't necessarily an asset to an, to, to an academic writer. Um, on the other hand, if you're writing, you know, swampy adventure fiction, it is an asset. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it was just a matter of giving myself permission or settling back into that voice and, um, and trusting that, that it was um, an adequate voice an adequate way of, of talking about the world and and uh, yeah um, so you mentioned you've mentioned a couple of times um characters like the feature folk being kind of like the people that you knew in georgia um my kids pointed out last night actually while reading one of the i think one of them did unprompted that uh that they seem like um native americans from 
Western mm-hmm. stories in some ways. Yeah. Was that something you were going after? Yes. Is, is that okay? So they're on. They're onto something there. They are onto something. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had. I actually had not thought of it quite that way. I, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking of them a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Like I, in my head, there's something more like some character from an Elmore Leonard, Elmore Leonard novel or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's that's an adult's perspective. You know, for them, they'll watch a Western movie or read a Little House in the Prairie book or something, and, and so they're they're catching on to something there. So the, the Fiji folk are kind of they they sit at that part of the Venn diagram where um, where every kind of wildness, um, it, you know, every kind of wildness that we love, the, the idea is they they do all of it. Right. So whether that's the, <laughs> as you said, the, the swamp people in an Elmore, in Elmore Leonard, you know, he has, he has one set in Florida. He has at least one set in Florida, doesn't he? Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 A lot yeah. of them. Right. Yeah. I think so. Uh, Miami he, and different. Yeah. 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 So, so those, those kind of swamp people and you said native Americans specifically the, even, even the, the language, the, even the word Fiji is inspired by, you know all those all all those uh, Creek Indian uh, place names where I grew up. They have the Ichi. Okay. You know, yeah, the, yeah. I grew up going to the Ichikani Creek and the the Ogeechee and the, the all that Ichi sound is a very. Yeah. Um, there's a Kinchifuni uh, River down there, so that's that's kind of where that came from. Also, Fiji is a um, is a um, uh, Scottish slang, old Scottish word that means something like um, slippery and nasty. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so Native Americans, uh, kind of good old boys, swampers, just all that kind of stuff rolled up. And because um, I was always interested in, in uh, the idea that that wild streak that, that everybody has isn't something just to be tamed out of us. It's something that God put there for, for a reason. And um there's more to it than just something that has to be tamed out of us. Did you, was that your favorite part of writing, creating those characters and getting oh, yeah. the voice? Yeah. It seems like it in reading them that, that <laughs> you had, you had fun writing those. Yeah. How, how much of, how much of uh Dobra, for example, or how, how do you, how do you pronounce it? Dobra. Okay. So how much of that is, uh, in, is inspired by your own kids? I was wondering that the other day, like, it seems like some of the, the, the wrestling that these kids do and the, mm-hmm. the, the sort of wildness has to have been in some ways, at least inspired by your own kids. Yeah. Yeah. My own kids. And just the, um, uh, there is a, there's a, there's a tradition that still survives, um, you know, of, of, of country people admiring physical courage or, or, or valuing physical courage in a way that maybe, um, you know, we, we lose in our suburban life, you know, and, yeah, uh, and yeah. I, tend, I mean, there, there was a, at my school, there was a, literally a fist fight every day. That was just something that that was part of the entertainment, you know, and, uh, I don't, Can you imagine I don't, that now. Yeah, no, I, I really, I, I, I can't, although one suspects there's still some schools around where there's that much of that foolishness going on, but, <laughs> but it was, um, but definitely my, my own kids were, you know, always going, we have a Creek nearby where, where they were always catching animals. And so there was plenty of that. Um, but also just that kind of American tradition and that's say American, maybe it's who knows all over the world, but it, in my own experience, there's this, um, 
as I said, the, the physical courage um, that's such an important part of um, the way some people interact with each other. Um, and um, so all, all the rest and all the fighting, all the, all the hands-on um, connection with, with animals. Um, mm. You know, I, I used to work with a guy who would go out and hunt wild boar every night after work, you know, through the night without a gun. He would just tie them up. He had a dog that would catch him by the ear and he'd tie him up and carry him out on a pole. And that was actually, the, he was the original for Dobra, a guy named Jake. Huh. <laughs> um, and he came to work crying one day because his, an alligator eat, had eaten his dog. Mm. Mm. And so I thought, I, and it, it, if you think about you, Aiden, he's, he's living this very civilized life and just, you know, a few yards away, here's Dobro Turtlebane being Dobro Turtlebane. That's kind of what I felt with this, this guy, Jake, you know, that I'm, I was kind of living this, I was actually a PhD candidate at the time, <laughs> and, you know, and, but I was working by day with this guy who was, who was living this, this wild existence at night. And, uh, and it kind of got me thinking about this idea of wildness being right there on the, on the, right there in the corner of our eye, you know? Do you see yourself in particular in any of the characters? Well, I mean, I think any, any character, um, there's, there's gotta be some part of the author in it probably. Um, but I guess in some ways I, I relate to Aiden more than anybody. And that's those stories, um, just as a person who wants to be courageous, but is not especially good at it, you know, <laughs> or just learning how. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, I'd like to be more like Dobro, but the truth is I'm not especially not all that much like Dobro. I like to pretend. Hmm. Did you, um, did you have like goals for what you wanted kids to get out of these stories, like some kind of a lesson or, or were you, or was it for you, you just crafting a good story that, that was going to have the right sort of energy and tone and mood? And um, yeah, I, I was just trusting that if I told a good story, um, any kind of themes or messages would take care of themselves. Um, I mean, I, I'm always interested in, um, in stories that convey um, grace, um, stories that it's kind of hard to, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say it's hard to find kid stories. Let, let me just say it's easier. It's easier to write a kid story that's about, I don't know, the, the maybe the, the conflict between good and evil or doing the right thing, or they're all there. It's easy to, to shape a, uh, a legalistic story for children. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. But but how do you shape a story that's about grace? Um, that's always been an interesting idea to me. And I'm, my ears perk up when I find a story that's, that's really about grace um, or that, that, that's, that finds a way to communicate the idea of grace to children. I think there's a, there's an element of grace in a lot of stories, but children's stories, um, you know, it's, it's hard to communicate the idea of grace to children. And uh, so that's, that's always an interest yeah. of mine. And, um, and so, but I, I also wasn't thinking, I was trying not to think in terms of theme or lesson or moral or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, I am a, I mean, I do believe that a, that a well-crafted story, you don't have to worry about the, you know, the, the, whatever message there is, is in the story. As, as Flannery Connor said, it's not like the theme is something you can, you can climb out of the story and, and, and find, you know, you, you have to, you have to go through the story to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if I'm not mistaken, well, you've mentioned it, you kind of implied it a couple of times that 
you know, the Western, the American Western stories have been an influence. And you mentioned, you know, even Lonesome yeah. Dove as a book that you love. And you, and so, so do, did you, um, is, do you, do you feel like these books, despite maybe not taking place in like Texas or Arkansas or like the Rocky mountains or something, do they mm-hmm. sort of fall into that tradition of, of Western American Western literature that that's kind of where you see them fitting the most, uh, precisely? Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned the, I mentioned the, uh, so-called Southwest humor stories. Right. Those are all set in what now we call the Southeast, but they're at a, they're at a time when the, when the American frontier was, was, you know, east of the Mississippi river. And right. so, um, yeah, they're definitely, my books definitely, I hope fit in that Western tradition. Uh, cause they are, they're about a frontier, you know, the Cornwall is a frontier country. Um, they were settling it from west to east because the the big continent was to the to the east, and they were kind of moving in the other direction. But yeah, there's definitely it's a it's a frontier story. Um, whether you you can call that a western or or you know probably more properly, it's a frontier story rather than a western. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, have you read A. B. Guthrie's books by any chance? No. You should. You, I think you'd like those. The Way West. Um, the big sky. I think one of them, I think maybe big sky won the Pulitzer actually back in the 40s. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I remember hearing about that. <clears throat> you should, uh, you should check those out. Martin Cothran from Memoria press put me onto those a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So I won't keep it too much longer. I had, I had Sarah McKenzie on the, sh- on the show recently and I, I asked her what she thought of the current state of uh, children's and young adult novels. And she was, she said there's there's plenty of of good ones you know that that it's a myth that there's not as much good young adult and children's fiction and one of the books that she mentioned in particular as a defense of that stance is uh your series so uh-huh. i'm i'm curious um if you can point to any um i mean you mentioned a few of the rabbit room ones but if there's any other books that are children's or young adult books that are contemporary that are you know have come out in the last couple of years that you really like and i've got a couple i'll just a couple of short answer a couple of rapid fire questions for you here as we wrap up okay um well i mean i love anything that um that kate camillo writes i think those are i think she's brilliant um she's really one of my favorites um and the rabbit room i love all those rabbit room titles um the wing feather saga um Angel and Pop and the Dog and um, and Jennifer Trapper's books. Am, uh, am I forgetting somebody? Um, Pete Peterson has two great books for people who are a little older. Um, I, I wouldn't give them to a elementary school kid because they're they're pirate books and the pirates actually act like pirates. You know, they talk <laughs> like pirates and behave like pirates. Um, yeah, yeah. Fiddler's Gun and Fiddler's As Gun. I would hope. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like Smee and Captain Hook. You know. They're, they're, <laughs> Um, and, uh, but the truth is I'm not, I'm not very up on, um, young people's literature to tell you the truth. I need to be. Well, okay. So like I said, some, some more rapid fire questions as we close here for you, what, what advice would you have for, uh, maybe some, some, some young people who are, or maybe not so young, but people who have read your books and, um, but, but like you are kind of aspiring writers that would love to tell stories like what you're telling. Do you have, what advice would you have for them? And you, I, I'm, I'm sure you could talk for a long time about this, but in a, I don't know, a couple of bullet points or something, what would you, what would you say? Um, I think I would just say to, um, to really pay attention to the, to the world around you. I mean, that, that originality is probably the most overrated of the writerly virtues that anybody who really gets good at portraying what is right in front of them, um, is going to almost by definition, uh, be original. Um, 
the the originality that's originality takes care of itself if you just get good at depicting what you actually see in front of you because you know the combination of things you've seen is different from the combinations of things that everybody else is seeing and you know you literally have your own your own perspective on the things that you've seen um, so I think that's really just such an important idea to really get good at depicting what's in front of you you know the Wilder Kings there's there's nothing original in the Wilder King stories um, I there's no landscape that is made up. There's no, um, I don't think there's any plot line that I didn't, um, rip off from somebody else. Um, it, you know, sometimes there, there are scenes in that, in that, those books where literally I went to a, I went to a restaurant in South Georgia and just got people to tell me stories. And the next day, one of, you know, one or two of those stories would be in the book. Hmm. Um, and so, which is another, another way of, um, paying attention to what's going on around you. That's listening to the stories people are telling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think, well, I've already said this originality is um, when you're striving for, for originality, it, it rarely works. Hmm. But when you're just trying to tell the truth, originality takes care of itself. Hmm. Uh, what are, what, uh, what would be on your uh, deserted Island book list? Say you can take two or three books with you and you're stranded for, a long time and you can only take two or three books. What are they, what are you taking? Oh, let's, say, let's take the Bible. Let's say the Bible uh, is not included. Okay. I was, yeah, I was just, I was about to Jesus juke you and say, I'm just going to take one book and that's the Bible. <laughs> let's just say uh, you can't, let's just say there's, there's like seven Bibles buried on the Island. And part okay. of the you have to find them. But in the meantime, sometimes you yeah. want to stop and read because you're tired. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's see how many books, two or three, two or three. All right. I'm not going to be able to say what my two or three favorite is. I'm just going to throw out a couple that I that mean a lot to me. Okay. Bar, Bartram's Travels, I'm crazy about. Okay. Um, I like that. I'm, that's the one that I've never heard anyone say when I asked that question before. Yeah. I mean, and that's not really, um, it's not that, I'm just mentioning it because people don't read it enough. Um, one thing I love about Bartram's Travels is when that guy made his trip through the American South, those rivers to him were as exotic as the Congo. You know, they were as wild and as, you know, he didn't know if there was going to be tigers jumping out. He didn't know what was going to be happening. And uh, those are the same rivers that I grew up, you know, paddling around on or going up and down on, on a John boat. And just the idea of somebody experiencing those as if they were, um, as I said, the Congo, that wild. I just love that idea. So I just love reading those books and sort of thinking about what did South Carolina look like? What did, you know, what did the Carolinas look like in that era? And how do you spell that for people who... Bartram's Travels. Yep. Uh, uh, Bartram is B-A-R-T-R-A-M. Okay. Just just wanted to huh? make sure on that one. Uh, you got a second one? Uh, second let's one? see. If I hadn't already said Lonesome Dove, I would say Lonesome Dove, but I'm, I'm going to. Lonesome uh, Dove's nice and long too, so it gives you a. That's true. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for long books. <laughs> Paradise uh, Lost. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, I got to have the uh, collected works of Flannery O'Connor. Okay. The short stories. Okay. Um, and what's your what's your favorite O'Connor story? Would you say? That depends on what day you ask me. <laughs> probably, probably more often than any other story, I answer good country people. Okay. Okay. Um, that's a great story. They're all great. Yeah, yeah. The one I recommend people to start with is Revelation. Okay. Um, um, I always say, if you don't like Revelation, you're probably not going to like Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> that's, yeah that's probably true yeah okay um and then shakespeare we're gonna we're gonna say shakespeare okay all right, all right. 
what books are on your nightstand right now? What are you reading like today? What are you going to read tonight? Um, well, thanks to close reads, I uh, am reading um, another Charles Portis book I've never read called Masters of Atlantis. Oh yeah, yeah. Have you read that? I'm 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 partially in it right now. I haven't finished it yet. So I'm reading that at the same time as reading True Get. It's a little bit. It's confusing me a little bit, but. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, let's see what else is on my nightstand. I've got a huge stack that's about to fall over on me, but that doesn't mean I'm reading them. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> I'm in the middle of the Aeneid for, um, uh, you know, at New College Franklin, I'm teaching uh-huh. through the Aeneid, um, about to start the city of God. Um, and, um, and then John Donne's poetry is the other thing I'm, I'm teaching next week. So, okay. um, most of my reading these days is for New College. Yeah. 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 Well, are you a movie guy? You like movies? Um, I do like movies. I got the movie pass. So I'm watching a lot more movies than I used to. So, um, let's, what are your, let's say your, your desert, your desert island has, <laughs> My a, desert island, yeah. Yeah, um, has, has the ability to watch movies. What are the two or three that you, that you would say are your, some of your favorites? Um, uh, maybe, maybe in particular ones that influence or inspire you as a storyteller. This, the, the movie that's influenced me more than any other as a storyteller is raising Arizona. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nice. Good. Um, I like that. I, and I, yeah. you know what? Now that you mentioned that, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first time I ever saw a movie and thought about the fact that somebody wrote it, which yeah. I guess in some ways is maybe not a good thing because it, the writing wasn't invisible, but, um, but well, I, maybe not to you, it, it just, but the writing captured you in some way and you thought, yeah, man, like I'd like to do what that person did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, I'm, I love that movie. I just saw it last week again for the first mm-hmm. time in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love uh, this is this is not all time. There's something I've seen recently that I liked. Hunt for the Wilder People. Have you seen that? No. Oh my goodness. Hunt it's for the Wilder People. Hunt okay. for the Wilder People. It's uh, a Taika Waititi movie. Um, and um, okay, yeah, New Zealand. Yeah, it is such a sweet movie and hilarious. Okay. And um, yeah, I love that movie. Um, I just saw Thor Ragnarok recently, another Taika Waititi movie. I thought that was fantastic. I haven't seen that uh, one I, either. I'm way behind I'm on my not, superhero movies. Yeah. I, I don't care anything about super, superhero movies, but when um, I saw that Taika Waititi had done it, I thought, I want to see that. And it was really funny. Hmm. And then at the end, it just turns into a regular superhero movie. <laughs> um, and I just, those, that just bores me. The, the superhero yeah. thing just bores me. But at least you had, some, you had some fun for the, until it happened. That's right. Yeah. Um, oh, black. I mean, I love black Panther. Have you seen that? I did. I saw black Panther. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it tries to do things that other superhero movies aren't doing. That's right. You know, even, even beyond have, you know, having a cast that is primarily African-American, you know, it goes beyond that, which is obviously an awesome thing and, and, and yeah. revelatory to see these actors, but some of the storyteller convent storytelling conventions that it kind of turns on its head and turns yeah. on their head, I guess. And the fun that it's having, I think it's, it's, there's a certain kind of fun that superhero movies have that feels like it's trapped in a box sometimes. Yes. They, they think it's going to be fun. So they feel like they have to do it. Whereas mm-hmm. black Panther is having fun in its own way. Like it's saying that this is what we think is fun and we're going to do this. And it turns yeah. out to actually be fun because yep. it's not sort of conventional fun, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, it does make sense. All right. So let's wrap this up. I've used enough of your time. What, where can people find the the wilder king trilogy um if they would like to get their hands on that and then you have to tell us uh what else you where, where else people 
you know, I think you mentioned you have a uh, you have a newsletter for people that are for about writing. So tell us yeah. when people can find out about that as well. Yeah, I've, I've just since January, I've been writing a, a weekly newsletter called The Habit, and just kind of takes on a some topic related to writing every week. Comes out on Tuesdays, and um, so at my personal website, Jonathan-Rogers.com, okay. uh, on I think it's the left side, maybe the right side. There's a thing that says "Sign Up for the Habit," and um, that's a good. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed connecting with people through that. Um, and then I, you know, uh, one thing I do in, in the habit is announce when I have online writing classes that I'm starting. So about every six weeks or so I, I do an online writing class, um, for grownups and, uh, oh, okay. yeah, that's a really fun thing that I do. Nice. Um, that sounds great. Besides my, you know, daily teaching at new college, which, um, your listeners need to know about new college too, if they don't. New College Franklin. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident many, if not all of our listeners know about New College. So, um, but we, we love partnering with, with, with y'all. And, um, well, we sure love what y'all are doing at Searcy in, in the okay. ways you are educating people about uh, the classical education because um, you and I have not been talking about classical education today, but I'm, I'm pretty fired up about that too. Well, I think we're not specifically talking about it. But, but you know, we're, we're not too far afield. <laughs> yeah. So, Good. okay. Let's, where can people find your books? Is that rabbit room oh, or sorry. Amazon or where, where, where would you rabbit room.com is a great place to find them uh, okay, because awesome. that supports the rabbit room, which yep. is a great organization that yep. people also need to know about if they don't. Um, so is that rabbit room.com you said rabbit room.com. All right. And okay. um, Amazon is doing okay without, you know, Without you, but but, <laughs> but the rabbit room would, would benefit. Um, but you can also get free shipping at, at Amazon, so I, I, I get it. But yeah, um, yeah, so really, any place you buy books online, you can you can uh, get my books. But I um, but I do like to direct people to the rabbit room when I can. Yeah, fair enough, understandable. We get we we get the same thing. We get it. <laughs> um, all right, well, Jonathan Rogers, thank you for joining me here on the show and. Um, I, well, thank I, you, David. I'm loving reading the books with the kids. It's been a great experience. The boys are loving them. And, um, you know, they're, right. I, hear, I hear them talking about them when we're not reading them. So that's always a oh, good time. So I wanted to get you on, pick your brain a little bit, hear a little bit about how these stories, you know, came to be. And, and we will be looking for the fifth book in 2011. <laughs> yeah, right. 2011. Your time machine. All right. <laughs> thanks, David. Yeah. Thank you. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 